welcome uh, to the inaugural episode of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I am your host, Miles Taylor, and I'm very excited to be hosting this on Call-In, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. But first and foremost, uh, we need an interesting guest to ask questions to. And today I'm excited uh, for a very special guest. I can't think of anyone better, honestly, at the moment uh, to talk about the issues of the day than Peter Fever and to walk us through what is happening in the world right now. Uh, for those who don't know him, Peter is a renowned professor at Duke University and before that, a top national security official in the U.S. government. He served on the National Security Council during the George W. Bush administration and has remained at the forefront of analysis on defense and foreign policy issues, which, of course, are dominating the conversation this week. Peter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's good to be here, Miles. So I, I want to ask you up front, there's a lot of news today about what's happening in Ukraine. Russia is stepping up attacks, especially in civilian areas. We've all seen the footage on television. There's a 40-mile convoy of Russian military equipment and soldiers headed towards Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. There was optimism over the weekend that uh, Ukraine may be holding its own. But my question for you, Peter, is was that misplaced optimism? No, the, the, it certainly was the case that Ukraine has been outperforming for the first five days or so, outperforming expectations of pretty much everybody, uh, Western analysts, uh, U.S. government analysts, and pro almost certainly uh, Russian government analysts who expected a much quicker victory. So in that sense, if you just look at the last five days, it, it could hardly have gone worse for Putin. The war has not lived up to his expectations. Ukraine hasn't responded as he expected. And the West has not responded as he expected. But will that continue for another five days? Can the Ukrainians keep outperforming? And will Russia keep underperforming? Or will Russia re recover its momentum and blast its way through to... Uh, achieve its original war aim, which was to topple the Ukrainian government. I think that question is still hangs in the balance. And so I would not uh, make a confident prediction that a week from today that we would still say uh, Russia is um, losing the war. They are losing it right now, but they they may not they may be able to turn it around. Well, Peter, if you can, uh, you know, transport us inside the Kremlin. And I know that's a really tall ask, but, you know, we, we've seen reports this morning that Putin is irate at his lieutenants, that he is engaging in outbursts at his commanders because it's not going quite the way he wanted so far. That sounds very familiar. I doubt he's ask them to print him out a list of tweets uh, to review, but uh, like someone else we know. But, but, what, but what do you think is happening in the Kremlin right now? And, and what are the implications for the war in the coming days uh, if Putin is very frustrated? Does it mean he's going to double down, triple down? Could it get worse because of that? Right. I, I think the two most important 
factors to follow right now are logistics and psychology. By logistics, I mean, can the Ukrainians resupply, rearm, and can the Russian invading force resupply and rearm? And the answer to the logistics question will tell you what the next week of fighting will look like. Uh, the best possible case scenario would be that the Russia uh, faces such severe logistics problems that their invasion grinds to a halt. It's frozen in place for lack of food, lack of gas, etc. That's a, a very optimistic uh, scenario from the West and from Ukraine's point of view. But the other line of action is psychology, and you put your finger on it. This war has is has shocked the world, but I think it's also shocked Putin in the sense that it has not gone the way he expected. And in the process, he has lost what he considers to be his most valuable uh, asset, fear of Putin, fear that prevents people from taking action and drives them to appease him. That's what he has played on both within Russia to retain power, but externally to intimidate the Europeans and the near abroad into making concessions to him. And that worked for a while. So the uh, the Western countries were were mostly accommodating to Putin uh, and many of his demands were being met either explicitly or implicitly. But he's overreached and now you see lots and lots of countries acting in ways where they say we're afraid of not acting more than we are afraid of acting. And so they're doing things like Germany doubling its defense budget overnight, uh, Sweden uh, shifting off of its neutral status, small countries offering weapons to Ukraine. These are all acts of defiance against Putin that would have been hard to imagine a week ago, and now they're commonplace. That creates a psychological crisis for Putin because his whole image is uh, uh, on this macho uh, intimidation, which he's lost. And now he's a laughingstock. Uh, and the, the world is rallying to Zelensky as the true hero. So you put all that together, it's a, it's a psychological crisis for him. And here's the, the scary part. He still has escalate. He Putin still has military escalation dominance. He has more horrible things he can do to Ukraine than Ukraine can do to Putin. And so you have a man with a psychological crisis and with nuclear weapons in his other hand. That is a very scary predicament. So, so maybe I'm going too far in asking this, but but you said, Peter, you know, Putin's key uh, sort of soft power, fear, the, the fear that other countries have of him um, has been diminished because of the way the conflict has been handled. Is it too far to say that now Putin himself should be fearing what might happen at home? I mean, look, in, in undertaking this, he's begun to take the Russian economy into a nosedive. Um, certainly he should fear the Russian public and how they might react in the medium term. Does Putin have anyone to fear in his inner circle? I mean, you know, could this be a scenario where this all ends? Because 
someone in the Russian federal government says enough is enough and they push him to the side? Is that a reality? Yes. And, and let me just be more precise in what I said. What he's lost is the, the fear that caused people to be unwilling to confront him. Now they're willing to confront him. Ukrainians are confronting him. The West is confronting him. And if his inner circle confronts him, then that poses a very dangerous moment for his regime. Uh, and his, of course, his hold on power depends on intimidating people uh, away from confronting him. Don't stand up to Putin. Just go along with him. And you can see you could see that fear on display uh, during some of the uh, meetings he had with his cabinet. But now they are uh, facing situations where what they are confronting in the rest of their lives may be worse than the what it would be to confront Putin. And when that moment happens, you could see someone uh, taking the matter directly to Putin and, and toppling him in an Ides of March kind of way. <laughs> Uh, you know, as Julius. Well, and let's paint a, let's paint a picture down, yes. here. I mean, you're you're right for the for the people who haven't seen the pictures or, or watched the video uh, that you referenced, Peter. You know, you've got Putin really berating, publicly berating his top intelligence officials and others on TV, going on these long rants, almost Trumpian in its uh, in its style and demeanor, and then also very surreal visuals. This is a man who, during the course of the pandemic has refused to sit next to people at tables. He won't sit next to world right. leaders or his own staff. He sits at the end of these gigantic, almost comically long tables, like you would see uh, in you know something like Citizen Kane, uh, or he's on one end and, and they're on the other because he's afraid of catching COVID. Um, and as a result, you know, and maybe you've got some thoughts on the psychology here. I mean, there's been reports this week that Western intelligence officials think that because Putin has been so hunkered down, because he's been in this bunker mentality, like a lot of people for the past couple of years during COVID, although worse for him, uh, that it's maybe affected his psychology. It's maybe affected his stability. And, and that takes me to another question, and that's this week the Russians put their nuclear forces on, on the highest alert, which, which spooked some people. It was, you know, the thought was, okay, is, is Putin either one – crazy? Is he losing his grip on reality and preparing to lose use nuclear weapons? Or two, is he bluffing? Do you think there's a clear answer to that yet? I don't. And I will note that uh, Ambassador Michael McFaul, who was ambassador to Russia under President Obama and so knows Putin very well, uh, he uh, observed that the people who know Putin the best say they worry that he might be serious. The people who don't know him very well dismiss this as idle bluffing. And that's an ominous uh, uh, pattern. Of course, they could be wrong. It could be just a bluff. But there's a lot of clo people who've been watching Putin closely who think uh, this could be sincere. And of course, it's it fits his psychology. He's trying to escalate to get back to the level where people are afraid to confront him because at the level he's been operating, no one is afraid to confront him, at least in the West. Everyone is standing up to him. So he tries to escalate to a level where people will be afraid of him again and they'll back down. Here's the challenge, though. Uh, if uh, the optimal solution from the West point of view is that someone inside Putin's circle 
gets him to step down somehow. That, w- but what if they don't? What if no one inside uh, is able to challenge him or willing to challenge him? And so Putin is remains in power. How do you get Putin to back down, given how far he has uh, invested his regime in in this invasion? And I think that's one of the most difficult strategic planning tasks in the government right now. What is how, how does this end? How do we get this to a ending that does not involve uh, a nuclear exchange but, and doesn't involve uh, Ukraine being wiped off the face of the map conventionally you know, with R- Russian art- artillery? That's a that's a big challenge. Well, we'll take us down a couple of those pathways, Peter. I mean, on the on the nuclear piece, you, you know, we haven't had a conversation like this publicly since maybe the days after 9-11 where there was uncertainty about what the origin was and if it was another country, maybe this would spiral into nuclear war, but then it was clear it was a counterterrorism fight. We, we haven't had nuclear brinksmanship in the West in this millennium, uh, in the 21st century. Uh, is, is this just hyperbole? Is, is this crazy talk? Or, or is there a credible scenario here where things could escalate to, to World War III. I mean, it's, it sounds absurd to say World War III, but is it right that people are worried about that and trying to keep us from that scenario? Yes, because the Russian military doctrine for decades now has been that the crossing over to tactical nuclear weapons is not a big step. That it, That is what you should do doctrinally, according to the Russian military, when your conventional... Uh, effort falters so uh they they don't view whereas in the west we view it as a very bright line between conventional and nuclear uh one that we try not to cross at all costs the russians have said no there is not such a bright line not at least not at the tactical nuclear uh scenario and so what when he's saying this he's just mouthing russian doctrine that if our invading efforts falters, then we regain momentum with nuclear weapons. Uh, so it's it's very plausible that, that he would do so. They also have a uh, approach of escalate to de-escalate. That is the way you get, if, if things are, are going poorly, the way you can turn the situation around is to escalate up the ladder, and then you can get your enemy to sue for peace to go back down the ladder. So if you put those two things together... The it it fits his situation right now. He would he would say, yeah, that's what I need. So I I don't think it's crazy to worry about this, um, and I'm I'm sure that the U.S. government is taking it seriously. That said, we still have our deterrent, and what has prevented countries from uh, nuclear powers from using nuclear weapons in the past has been the threat of nuclear retaliation. And while Russia is paying an economic price, they haven't—they're not paying a military price on their homeland. Uh, they could re- retreat and re- keep their army more or less intact. Uh, there's some humiliation they've received, but they, it's not the kind of devastation they would receive if this escalated to a nuclear war. And so there's lots for uh, Russia and the Putin regime to want to preserve 
that might keep them from escalating to nuclear. And this is the other point about the Ides of March, right? That flirting with that could be enough to persuade his uh, inner team that it's time for Putin to go. That this is so, just too reckless for for uh, the, the the stakes in in uh, Ukraine don't justify that, and so it's time for him to go. So this is a double edged sword for Putin. On the one hand, you're saying he's rattling the saber, he's threatening to use nuclear weapons, or he's at least sending signals that you know I'll do it, I'll do it to try and spook his adversaries, to try to scare Ukraine, to try to scare the West away. But if he rattles the saber too hard. He, he maybe scares people around him, scares them to the point that they say, you know, we've got to do something about this guy and our regime, Putin. Is there anyone in Russia that seemed to have the credibility to replace him or to move him to the side? Or, or has Putin, you know, largely sidelined his critics? Uh, would it be a, you know, a sort of a nobody that we, we right. haven't really heard of in the West who would step in and fill that vacuum if it happened? Yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I'm sure that if Putin, who has thought about this more than you and I put together, has identified every possible one and eliminated them long ago. So uh, this is the this is one thing that dictators are very good at is uh, eliminating internal challengers to their uh, authority. So I think uh, we, we've been spending a lot of time in our conversation on it, but I actually think it's it's a pretty far fetched scenario. Uh, and so I and it's not one that we can influence much from the outside. Uh, yep. I think the U.S. has to focus its efforts on um, one shoring up the Ukrainian uh, defense so as to keep the pressure on on Putin. Obviously, if the war uh, shifts back into the favor of the the Russian invasion, then he's that he has no incentive to back down. But well, uh, let's let's the, jump for a second, though, Peter, to the other side of the conflict. Right. We've got Putin scheming in his castle here. But on the other end, I think a lot of people who have not been attuned to these issues um, are now tuning in, frankly, because there's there's almost a cultural icon that's emerged amidst all of this, amidst the bloodshed. Uh, and that's the Ukrainian president, Zelensky. I mean, a man who. Uh, you know, was sort of born of the entertainment industry. He was a comedian. He was on a popular television show where he played the president of Ukraine. And then just a few years ago, actually ran for president of Ukraine. It was sort of life imitating art. And now here he is, the president in a war to defend his country and to defend Ukraine's sovereignty uh, and has received sort of resounding international acclaim for bravery, courage, and, and a very public stand against the Russians. I'm curious, you know, Vladimir Putin has been planning for years to go into Ukraine. That's clear. He wants to take back this land, this territory that he thinks belonged to the Soviet Union. For many years, though, there weren't terribly charismatic leaders running Ukraine. Uh, do you think this changes the equation at all, that now there's you know, even beyond war and peace, there's this iconic figure that's seen as a hero at the center of it. D does that change this at all? If so, how? I, I think it changes it a lot. If Zelensky had not met the moment, uh, if he had been as inadequate as people feared that he was, uh, and even 
six months ago, people were pointing out the flaws in the Zelensky uh, government. Um, so uh, if he had lived down to expectations, then this war effort could go a different way. He has been uh, a remarkable leader, and and history is made when ordinary people do extraordinary things in extraordinary moments. And I think we're witnessing that. Zelensky has risen to the occasion. And that has to be galling for for Putin because Zelensky is earning all the things that Putin covets, which is admiration and um, uh, respect for a sense of toughness. And, of course, Zelensky is, is earning that. He's also showing himself quite adept at the uh, information warfare side of leadership. You know, he's he's winning the propaganda battle thus far. Uh, and that that has surprised a lot of people because Putin had showed himself pretty adept at propaganda. Even in Putin's meddling in the U.S. elections, he had been pretty, uh, you know, adroit in in disrupting U.S. and exacerbating U.S. fissures and things like that. And and now he's just seen in the Ukraine, he's been ham handed and and several steps behind uh, Zelensky at every turn. Well, I, I'm going to feel free to, uh, you know, if, if folks that are listening live have questions, uh, they can feel free to indicate as such. We'll try to get to a couple of listener questions if we can. In the meantime, I want to ask you, though, Peter, uh, that, you know, Z- Zelensky is a hero for the moment, but we're also seeing reports that the Russians have potentially hundreds of mercenaries in Kiev, actively hunting Zelensky down. Uh, you know, the, the news reports indicate these are assassination squads trying to take him out. Now, you've served at the highest levels of the federal government. You've sat in the White House situation room. What do you think the United States government, what is the Biden administration doing to prevent that outcome? Certainly, it's a massive loss to this effort, not just to the Ukrainian people, but to the West to lose a leader like that who's at the forefront of the effort, what can be done to protect Zelensky at this point? There were credible reports that the U.S. offered to evacuate Zelensky ahead of the invasion uh, last week. And in one of his most memorable quotes, he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And I think that will go down in history as um, as famous as anything Churchill said uh, 25 years from now, people will be quoting that. Uh, and that was a brave uh, move by Zelensky, and the right one. However, there could reach a point where, uh, if the war tide shifts against the Ukrainians, uh, where he might need to be rescued out of Kiev to Lviv, for instance, um, or if the Russians keep going, out of Lviv itself. And there are assets that the U.S. has that can serve in those moments, and I would expect that uh, the offer would be made because keeping Zelensky alive uh, is an important part of the Ukrainian war effort at this point. So tonight, Peter, uh, Joe Biden makes his State of the Union address, really the his first State of the Union after a full year in office, and he now makes it amidst this war, amidst this crisis. 
What do you think he needs to say tonight, not just to uh, allay, you know, the American people about our role, but frankly, what does he need to say to the Ukrainian people? That's a great question. Before I answer that, let me just state I've been very critical of the Biden administration at points. I thought they botched the Afghanistan um, uh, situation dramatically and that it was a catastrophe that may have uh, inadvertently convinced Putin that that the Biden and the United States was weak. So I've been critical, yet it must be acknowledged that the Biden team has been really impressive in their handling of the Ukraine crisis thus far. I can make minor criticisms, but but really they've handled this very challenging situation as well as any administration would have. Uh, And so um, uh, I hope that continues because we need a strong America in moments like this. Mm -hmm. Now, on in terms of the State of the Union, tonally, this is going to be difficult. This is not a time for a victory lap because this war is very much still in the balance. And we uh, Biden cannot give the impression that that this is all over, that it's a you know, a five-day Netflix uh, series that's been wrapped up. We are uh, still in the beginning and not even uh, out of the beginning yet of this war. So he has to uh, temper expectations while also uh, recognizing the extraordinary moment that it is. And, And so I would expect that the first and loudest standing ovation that we'll see will be for uh, Zelensky in some way, that the president will find a way to acknowledge uh, Zelensky and his um, c- courage and and the way that has galvanized the West. I think the president can also remind Americans that we've done this. We have confronted uh, evil in before and we can do it again. Uh, and that much of what needs to be done, much of the work that needs to be done in Europe is work that the U.S. has has done well in the past, and and so this is not beyond us. At the same time, we ha- the president has to point out that that we face two uh, great power adversaries, Russia and China, and the administration had been intending, I believe, to focus on China, uh, and if if he loses uh, that. Uh, the China focus and and focuses exclusively on Europe, that will be a mistake. One of the best things Secretary Blinken did in the run-up to the actual invasion is he kept his commitment to go to Southeast Asia. Uh, And it would have been easy for him to say, I can't go because of diplomatic crisis in Europe. But he kept his commitment, uh, underscoring that the U.S. is an Asia power, we're in Asia to stay. We've always been in Asia, and uh, we will honor our Asian commitments as well. The president needs to make that um, point. But then there's, I think for most Americans, uh, it's still domestic policy uh, first and foremost. And this is a very difficult uh, moment in terms of our domestic economy. And unfortunately, the Ukraine crisis exacerbates that. Inflation is going to go up, 
at just the worst time for the U.S. economy, which is already experiencing inflationary pressure unrelated to Ukraine. Uh, and the president overreached and his team overreached in last year in their domestic agenda. I think that was a mistake. He should have uh, tried for a more modest set of uh, um, efforts that befit the fact that he doesn't have a large governing majority. He has to cooperate with uh, the Republicans. Had he done that, he'd have more to boast about um, uh, at the State of the Union. But because he overreached, he has less to boast of. But this is not a time for boasting. I, I, I thought the advice he got from some of the wise Democratic political advisors to speak, uh, to connect with the American people who are worried, who are angry, who feel like the country is not heading in the right direction, and to connect with them and then provide a reassurance that he is, uh, he will lead them in a, he lead us in a different direction. That's what he needs to do politically. Uh, to to save the administration. Well, that, that's a really good flag, Peter. And, and I want to take a caller question right now. Uh, we've got Avery calling in. And uh, Avery, the microphone is yours if you have a question. Thanks, Miles. Hi, Peter. I was wondering, sort of speaking of China, um, what do you think that the impact of the Ukraine uh, crisis has on the dynamics between China and Taiwan? Um, and if there is a poten potential escalation there, how do you think that that will impact the U.S.'s participation in these conflicts? Well, that's a great question. Thanks, Avery. That, that's a great question. And indeed, that was where everyone was focused in the run up to uh, this invasion when it looked like uh, Russia might be able to uh, win this quickly in two to three days. The concern was how then to reassure uh, shore up deterrence in Taiwan? Wouldn't China view that as uh, a uh, sort of dress rehearsal for what China wants to do in Taiwan, which is to, to uh, retake Taiwan? Now that it has gone poorly, I think there's a moment to, to uh, reinforce a different lesson, which is that free people fight for their freedom. And the Ty Taiwanese people will fight for their freedom. And if we had taken some uh, military shoring up of Ukraine measures earlier, we might have made it even harder for, for Russia, maybe to the point of dissuading Putin from invading. And certainly we have that opportunity now in Taiwan. So it's called the porcupine strategy. Make Taiwan so hard to conquer in a porcupine way that the the uh, the dragon decides they won't try to swallow it. And so uh, there, there is an opportunity here. I realize all analogies are, you know, fraught, but uh, this this could be the Spanish Civil War before World War Two, a, a moment where uh, it's a testing ground for techniques and military techniques, but also for elites to wake up and realize War is coming. Uh, and just as the Spanish Civil War did that before World War II, this could uh, be the wake up call before uh, a, a confrontation with China in the East. Peter, in the time remaining, and, and we may be able to take a couple of more questions, but I have a, a few to round us off. And one would be to bring us back 
domestically. In addition to China, there's a lot going on here on the U.S. home front as it relates to the Ukraine crisis. Namely, we've seen over the past few days a cohort of people at the highest levels, frankly, of the Republican Party associated with the GOP seemingly expressing pro-Putin, pro-Russia sentiments. You know, keeping in mind this is a foreign country that considers America one of its top adversaries. They meddled in our 2016 election. Uh, yet we've got major figures in the Republican Party, including Donald Trump, who praised Putin as a genius, as a pretty smart guy for what he's doing in Ukraine. You've got folks like Tucker Carlson on Fox News hailing uh, Putin uh, at times before backpedaling. Uh, you know, top members of Congress going to conferences where they're cheering Putin's name. What do you make of this? I mean, it seems like on the one hand, the Russians are invading Ukraine on the ground. They seem to be invading and seizing the minds of leading political figures here in the United States. Is, the, is there a Russian propaganda invasion here in our country that we have to worry about? Well, the irony is it seems to be being done voluntarily. <laughs> the, the Russians aren't doing much to uh, to uh, catalyze it. Uh, they just take advantage of it and then replay it on their TV when they see it. Uh, the, in, in the Cold War, the Soviets had a phrase for this. They called people who did this useful idiots, the Russian, uh, the Russian word for useful idiots, people who would mouth Soviet propaganda in voluntarily. Uh, and then that uh, allowed the Soviets to uh, echo it and make it sound like what they were saying was shared by lots of people. It was painfully dumb at the time. I think now in hindsight, a week later, some of those quotes are uh, just excruciating for for the folks you mentioned. And I, I think each one of them has climbed down from the more extreme statements they were making. Tucker Carlson retreated a little bit. Uh, and I think President Trump tried to uh, again on Saturday at the CPAC speech. So they I think they recognize that they are uh, uh, out of touch with both reality, but also where the mood of the country is. And this is the problem when you uh, when you base your appeal not on policy, but on on uh, polemic and populism, if you miss your moment <laughs> you can be wildly out of step and, and can be dropped uh, very quickly. And if you, I think if you look at the, the ambitious Republicans who want to be president, that is, who, who know they have to appeal to a, the majority of the American people and not just want to get rich by appealing to a tiny fraction of the public, if you look at the ambitious Republicans, they are uh, encouraging Ukraine, standing up to Putin, they're they are criticizing the Biden administration, to be sure, and, and wanting Biden to be tougher, but they are not uh, serving as stooges for Putin. And so and that tells me that the that the future of Republican uh, foreign policy anyway uh, may not be as bleak as it sounds if you just look at the quotes from the people you mentioned from last week. Can I ask you a bigger question? picture question, Peter, about sure. our politics. Uh, you know, you are a defense expert, you're a national security expert, but you've, you know, you've served under 
multiple presidents. You've been, uh, you know, in the heart of Washington, D.C., you know, at the, again, at the highest levels of the White House. Um, what's happening in our politics? <laughs> what's going on? And, 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 and does this, you know, does the discord in our discourse, if you will, what does it signify for, you know, America's prospects of reaching its 300th birthday in this century? It's bleak, but we've been here before. Uh, the echoes to the 1930s are eerie. Uh, part of my job here at Duke is I lead a staff ride uh, where I take students and faculty to examine a battle from, from our past. In a couple of days, we're going to be going to Hawaii to study the Pearl Harbor attacks. And so I've been preparing the students for that. And we everyone plays a role where they have to uh, talk about what their character did and how it connects to that. And the role I'm playing is Father Coughlin who was one of the original America Firsters. Actually, he's considered the father of hate radio, a Catholic priest who uh, fomented uh, and uh, in a bombastic way throughout the 1930s, but eventually became... This is a great role for you, by the way. It's yeah. a great role for you, Peter. <laughs> it's a dangerous role during in the age of iPhones but uh, and TikTok. But but the point is, you know, I'll, as I'm researching Father Coughlin... And hearing him speak as a, you know, playing some of his radio shows, they sound very similar to what we hear on TV uh, today. Um, and and so this th these same forces, uh, the uh, America first turning into blame America first, uh, that was where we were in the late 1930s. And what was dramatic is how rapidly America shifted after the Pearl Harbor attacks, that was the galvanizing moment, to be sure. Uh, but it shifted into the America that rescued the world from both Nazism and uh, Japanese militarism, then rebuilt Japan and rebuilt Europe and protected uh, the, the West uh, for out the Cold War from the Soviet threat. That This was America at its finest, and that was just months after America at its worst. And so I, I'm not yet willing to write off America. I see all the echoes from the 30s. We have to turn it around. I hope we can turn it around without a Pearl Harbor kind of shock. But uh, I, I believe it was President Clinton who used to say, and he, by the way, I worked in his administration, so I, I uh, have seen this inside from Democratic and Republican administrations, I think he used to say there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right about America. And I believe that's a, a good insight. And so I'm still hopeful, even though when I see the echoes to these uh, bleak moments in the past, uh, I'm tempted to be despairing. Well, I, I think that's a, a hopeful note to wrap up on, Peter. I want to ask you in closing – uh, you, you may have some new writing coming down the pike in the not-too-distant future. Uh, we're excited to see what that is. You've got a lot to say on, on defense policy and civil-military relations. Uh, anything you want to preview with us and anything else we should be paying attention to right now in the world at the moment? <laughs> well, I, I'm working on a book on public confidence in the U.S. military. What drives it and why does it matter? And one of the interesting dynamics of the last two years has been just how difficult um, it has been 
to navigate civil-military relations in the last year of the Trump administration, but also in the first year of the Biden administration. And so the book looks at that question with a focus on why, what does the public think about the military and why does that matter? And I hope I can come back uh, sometime in the future, maybe when this crisis is behind us and we can dig into that issue as well. Well, we would absolutely love that. Peter Fever, renowned professor at Duke University, former national security official. Thank you for shining a light for us on what's happening in the conflict. Thank you for speaking up on these issues. And we do hope to talk to you very soon. Thank you very much. Hope to, looking forward to it. All right. And thank you, everyone, for listening to Speaking Up. We've got exciting guests coming up in the next uh, few weeks. We look forward to having you looped in and we'll talk to you soon.